This program is a presentation of UCTV for educational and non-commercial use only. I welcome Russ Leach as our first panelist today. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad the mayor's here so he can really see that I do work seven days a week, 24, <laughs> hours, 24 hours a day. Um, I could say a lot. I could offer a lot to the debate so far. Um, certainly, Attorney General Lockyer covered a lot as far as law enforcement's involvement uh, since September 11th. Uh, the prior panel touched on some issues that I'm going to expand upon also. Um, Quite frankly, uh, the role of local law enforcement uh, has changed since September 11th, um, but we still deal with crime. We're dealing with more crime. We still get calls for service. We get calls for more service. We still get demands for police resources, more <coughs> demands for more, more police resources. We're looking at more advanced technology to help us do our job. We're also doing the job now of some other agencies also. Uh, Prior to September 11th, the FBI uh, did a lot of local enforcement for us, bank robbery investigations, uh, drug uh, cases, and so forth. Uh, their role has shifted somewhat now. They're expanding their role into becoming more analysts, looking at the international issues, analyzing uh, terrorism activity across the world, and so forth. So um, by them shifting resources, it's become more demanding on local resources, local police agencies like ours in Riverside. I must say to you this, that. Uh, next week is my uh, second year anniversary here in Riverside. Mm -hmm. It's a great community. It's a great place to live. It's a great place to, to work and to police. Um, meeting many of you here in the past couple of years, involved, energized, enthusiastic citizens who care about this community. So yes, we're thinking globally, but we do want to work locally. And I say that to uh, Miguel and to Diane. I was very touched by their uh, bravery in speaking out. Uh, members of their peer group don't often do that in an area where we, uh, where we live here and work. You know, just a few short blocks from this university is uh, one of the highest crime areas in the city, the east side that these two youngsters are talking about. And we have terrorists, we have gangsters who are terrorists, we have domestic terrorism we're dealing with, black on brown crime, uh, brown on black crime. It's something we need to address here locally. So while we are recovering from the horror and tragedy of September 11th, having our shores attacked by uh, terrorists by thugs from across the ocean. We do need to work uh, on a regular basis here to make sure that our streets are safe. So we're committed to that. Uh, yes, we're assuming more responsibility. Uh, again, as I mentioned, taking over some areas that the FBI once investigated. And we are responding to calls for service. But uh, the demands on police uh, on our time and our services are, are, are enormous. Um, one of the first uh, horrible uh, attacks of hatred occurred in Phoenix after September 11th. A Sikh gentleman was murdered there because he wore a turban and wore a beard. And every day in the newspapers are looking at pictures of Osama bin Laden who wore a turban and, and wears a beard. So our first response here was we, we found out there's a large Sikh community. Uh, and they have a gridora just outside the city limits. And we went to visit them. And, and here they are having to spend their money and resources to explain who they are and what they are not. This is a wonderful community, but now they're forced into, into going public to explain about their culture and what they represent. We have a Jewish temple here in Riverside. Uh, they received some threats. We had to go assist them. We have the mosque here in Riverside. So demands were enormous uh, to provide a level of safety that people deserve and expect. 
Um, shortly after September 11th, remember the anthrax uh, issues with anthrax? We had at least 50 calls three days in a row to my office, and mine's an administrative phone number. So you can imagine the demands on other units of the police department to come out and talk about anthrax. <coughs> we don't know a thing about anthrax, not a thing. So we have to provide training. We have to make uh, more liaison uh, with, with the post office and other agencies who, who feel they're, they're under attack and, and feel they're vulnerable to, uh, to continuation of hatred attacks and terrorism attacks. So the demands on us have been tremendous, tremendous and costly. But we are public servants, and we have to take care of the issues in our community. We are here to protect and serve, but we're also here to learn. We have to keep an ear onto the issues uh, that are being debated about uh, international issues, Israel, Palestine, and others, and see how it plays on our shores. And as the Attorney General mentioned, uh, we're, we're also providing that delicate balance between First Amendment rights and public safety, which is a great history of this country. So we are many things to many people, but we want to be the strong uh, providers or prevention programs <coughs> of our people at Riverside. We want to be the strong provider of enforcement programs to our people in Riverside. And we'll continue to do that as the theme again emerges, looking forward uh, to working together as a community. But we need to partner. We need to be together. You mentioned the adults and they don't understand the issues affecting the youth. Uh, we need to educate the adults that way. We do. So I think you're about to see some wonderful initiatives occurring here in Riverside, particularly on the east side, uh, working together with schools and the university and uh, my department uh, to really make, a, really make an effort here. You know, we had a 13-year-old boy murdered uh, a couple of months ago, Anthony Sweat, here in the east side. And uh, we got some wonderful response from the community, a candlelight vigil, expressing their outrage. And I think it's necessary and finally expressing their outrage about this kind of crime. But I'm touched by something that occurred about a month prior to that. There was a four-year-old boy shot in the leg in a gang gang. A four-year-old boy shot in, in the leg. This is the second time that same four-year-old boy has been shot. The second time. <clears throat> Are we going to tolerate that anymore? No. The second <clears throat> time. It's become an expectation now for this young boy, unfortunately. We've got to stop that. We've got to stop that. We do need to work together. And I'll address those issues if I get a chance a little bit later on. Thank you. Thank you. One of the issues uh, that has emerged repetitively is the importance of education, the absolute crucial role of hope in terms of moving people creatively into the future so that they don't feel the despair that's so immobilizing. And certainly employment is one of the key factors related to education and to hope. Jamil Dada is going to give us some remarks in his experience as uh, chair of the Riverside uh, County Workforce Development Board. Thank you. Um, you'll get a slightly different spin on this, um, hopefully. And before I get into that, let me just briefly tell you who the Workforce Development Board is, because I speak frequently and people always ask me, who is the Workforce Development Board? The Riverside County Workforce Development Board is a 40-member board um, appointed by the County Board of Supervisors, and there's 20 public sector board members and 20 private sector board members. And it's the policy-making board that oversees the approximately, depending on the year, 20 to $25 million of federal funds that the county receives. And it's for the whole county. And in California, there are 50 workforce development boards for, for 50 different counties. And anyway, we're one of the, the larger five in the, in the state. And, and it has been my privilege to be the chair of this organization for the third year. Um, so we did basically believe that along with transportation, workforce development is a huge issue 
for Riverside County. And Riverside County has challenges because from, to drive from one end of the county to another, it's three hours. And in Orange County, it's only an hour. So we, we have one-stop workforce centers that are spread out over the county. And along with the Riverside County Economic Development Agency, we do labor market surveys every year. And every year when we do our surveys, we find when the responses come back, the biggest issue that comes up is the lack of character and the lack of ethics and how rude people are in the United And this is a national issue, by the way. You know, and I'm sure that some of you can relate. Um, you go to a fast food restaurant or a retail shop. I mean, clerks are rude. People are rude. On the road, people are rude. Character. So what we wanted to do is, is kind of build up on the character issue. And so last week, actually two weeks ago, the County Board of Supervisors helped us to proclaim Riverside County as a character counts county. And we want to to discuss character and we want to teach character in our one-stop workforce centers and we want to start teaching character in the schools. So the spin on the 9-11 here uh, basically is that um, we feel after 9-11 obviously we are all more, all more resolute in our commitment to the, um, the, the fundamentals of, of what this nation was based on. I mean, we, we, we cherish democracy a little bit more. Uh, we feel that, yes, it, it, was, uh, it was a day of tragedy. Um, and we need to remember that every year, that it was a day of tragedy. But at the same time, we need to remember that it was a day of triumph. And that's triumph of character and courage. Because we believe that, that what we saw on 9-11 and after, and what we're still seeing in, in the uh, police and the fire, fighters and our nation was a remarkable show of character everybody showed that and so we want that to be remembered and yes we we want it to be remembered as a day of misfortune but we also want it to be remembered as uh, that we're fortunate that we have people that have character that we live in a country where character counts and for the youth I do want to remind them too that in our workforce development program, we actually have a Council for Youth Development, which focuses strictly on youth issues. So if you need information on that, contact me, and I, I will leave you my phone number. So basically, what we're trying to do here is going forward, now that 9-11 is over, let's, you know, let's become better citizens. Let's promote character building. And you will see more of this. This is our, our public campaign, um, Character Counts. And we want everyone to know that in Riverside County, character counts. So we're just coming out with this. You are going to see this everywhere in all the businesses in Riverside County. And the six pillars of character uh, are what we're going to focus on. And those are trustworthiness, respect, responsibility, fairness, caring, and citizenship. And if everybody lived by those, you know, we would have less hate crime. We would have less problems overall. So please help us in making Riverside County a character counts county. And uh, I think we'll all be better for that. Thank you. Thank you, Jamil.
Shani Beeman, will you tell us about your work with the Human Relations Commission and other related activities? Well, first, thank you. And first, I wanted to say I'm a graduate of North High School, so yay that you guys are here. <laughs> um, I think that's thrilling. And I, I was very moved by the presentation by the, the two student speakers. And I look forward to our student speaker um, today because I know I didn't really start to understand that I could stand up and start um, speaking out on my beliefs and my principles. In fact, I remember the first time I had a microphone clipped to me. I mean, there have been plenty of times I rushed to a microphone. Um, but they clipped the microphone to me, and it dawned on me. It was like, they really want to hear what I have to say. Um, and, and that was a revelation that didn't come until my 30s, easily. And so I think it's, it's wonderful that we have young people here today who are working with organizations like PRO. And I hope you hear it loud and clear today that we want to hear what you have to say. It's, it's critical to this process. And I applaud organizations like PRO. Um, and I'm proud that we have that kind of organization in our community. I think, yeah, we need to. On the Human Relations Commission, I, I was newly appointed in, in November, uh, right after September 11th. And I was somewhat surprised by my appointment because I had um, been fairly vocal, uh, a fairly vocal critic of some of the um, ways in which our government had been operating, specifically um, the police department. But um, those activities sort of helped me mature in my own understanding about how you go about building positive and inclusive relationships in our community. Uh, with the hiring of, of um, Chief Leach and his attitude toward how we can, as a community, move forward in a lot of controversy and a lot of um, pretty upsetting um, situations in our own community, I actually think it helped prepare me personally for September 11th. Understanding that as as a member of this community, I have a responsibility to this community to think about what's going on and what my response should be to it. And to share my opinion with others and, and sort of rally, I think Brian Levin said it appropriately, people of goodwill. You may not like what we have to say, necessarily. I may not like what I hear from, from everyone who stands up at a microphone. But by golly, I'm going to listen to it, and I'm going to think about it. And it's going to become part of who we are as a community to work together and to build those partnerships. I think in the aftermath of 9-11, of one of the, the personal effects that I had or, um, was this whole flag-waving patriotism. And it reminded me a lot of um, after the initial bombing of um, the United States of Iraq, and the yellow ribbons and the, the flag waving that went on. And I really wondered if people understood patriotism and understood if it was just knee jerk. And I think in 9-11, it was an opportunity for us to not be knee jerk in our response and our definition of patriotism. Patriotism is, is linked to democracy in this country. And we really have to understand what democracy is. Democracy isn't about good selection in our grocery stores. Too many people equate democracy with consumerism. What democracy is, is the empowerment of people to stand up and share what they believe. 
and democracy is about listening to one another respectfully. It's about mm -hmm. character. And it's about coming together as a community, sharing our ideas, and respectfully listening to one another. And I, I'm, I'm very proud of Riverside and how it's dealt with some of its issues in the past five years that I've really been paying attention. And I have to say I wasn't paying real close attention prior to that. And when, as a country, we faced the tragedy of 9-11, I realized I had a role. I had an important role to play. And I felt empowered to be able to stand up and volunteer myself and to share my opinions. Another key to being able to, that empowerment, is when you stand up and make a suggestion, be ready to follow through on it. Okay? So many people say, you all ought to be doing this, that, and the other thing. <laughs> you come to a Human Relations Commission and say that, and I'll say, you know, I need your name and phone number, because that is a wonderful idea, and we're going to follow up on it, and I want you to be a part of that, because that's what the Human Relations Commission is about. It's about listening to your ideas and transforming them into action, but the only way they get transformed into action is through you, by you. There are several flyers, just in case you're looking for something to do, um, there are several flyers on the back table, and I want to um, draw your attention to them. Um, Monday, two days from now, the Human Relations Commission is holding a diversity hearing. This is the second stage of um, sort of attention and public forum that we have had in the aftermath of the Jeffrey Owens murder. Jeffrey Owens was a, a gay man who was murdered in a stabbing behind the menagerie bar here in Riverside. And I, I want to pause and say it was one of the most um, horrifying incidents, personally, for me and many of my friends, but also one of the most heartening to see how the police department and the community work together to deal with that tragedy. It was also heartening to see our city government get behind the Human Relations Commission and say, you're right, you need to do a public forum on it. And, and the mayor's office getting behind this hearing that follows up even further to look at what are our major employers in Riverside doing around diversity and sensitivity training. Because we felt that that was a core, um, that was one of the pillars in our community. If our, if our, organ, if our um, employers are doing um, diversity and sensitivity training that's going to affect our community. So that's happening Monday. We hope you can join us. Um, it will be at City Hall at 6 o'clock. Also on October 26th, the city is sponsoring a meeting and they want community involvement in developing a three-year strategic plan. This is a way that you can become directly involved in developing programs and getting government um, organized in a way to, to meet the needs that you see that our, organ that our community needs. And especially to the youth in the audience today, we need to hear from youth. There's so many of these kinds of meetings that happen and there isn't anyone under the age of 35 or 40. Okay? So we really need youth input into this and the flyers are on the back table. September 24th, the Inland Empire um, Coalition Against Hate is holding their quarterly meeting, and we're going to be talking about hate crimes that target members of religious um, communities. 
Um, this has been an increasing problem um, nationwide as well as in our own community. And the, the structure of these meetings are to listen to what people's experiences are with intolerance and hate and to begin networking uh, with people of goodwill in our community who want to address um, intolerance and hate in our community. So I invite you to join us at any or all of those events. And I know there are other flyers in the back uh, of the room. Please take some time to take a look at them. Thank you. Thank you, Shani. Thank you very much. Let's turn our attention now to Johan Mohamed Yusuf, who is with us from Silverado High School in Victorville, and uh, will offer some remarks from his experience. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, well, as we all know now, the fact that um, terror, a terrorist is like someone giving terror or like scaring a lot of people that are weaponless. And so what I want to say is that especially like on the attacks on 9-11, it affected everybody. You could say that it affected every ethnicity, different age groups and it even affected other nations of the world with this attack. And so, like, it brought up a state of, a question of why they would do such a thing. Why would they do such a horrible act? And the thing is, you could all, ter uh, terrorism, it, you could just narrow it down from a simple act of a threat to your friend in school or it could be as major as what happened in 9-11. And so I believe that um, what the aftermath was, especially um, I know what happened in my school, there was the community came together after the attacks. The associate student body performed the blood drive after the um, September 11th attacks. And the, amazingly, there were so many students that wanted to donate their blood that there were some that had to be turned away. And so, um, as, as youth in school and all, those questions, there are some questions and wonders and all that come in our minds, like, how are we going to deal with this if something as major as this happens when we become adults? What do, how would we deal with this when we're in charge, when we're in the government system and all? Are, we're, we're looking back at the examples of what the past generations have done. Like, but at the same time, we also must believe that there's always going to be hope because um, Truth, the truth is there is always hope out there. And what I'm hoping is that the communities would, be, uh, would come together in a stronger community and, bring, and deal away with all the prejudice and the discrimination and any kinds of terrorist track, threats. And so you have to know that in order to achieve that, we can't just let everything just fall into place. That's not going to happen like that. Each person in the community is going to be responsible for the success of a community. 
and it all, um, it's going to be with the family, helping each other out to have more family activities in the community. And um, there's a quote from Martin Luther King that says, I have a dream that my four sons will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And this is what we are hoping that all societies of the world would achieve. So we also need to understand that sometimes we hear lessons and all from adults as youth, like you're not supposed to do this, not supposed to do that as in a threat. But we also need to understand that sometimes some youth only understand what other youths are saying. Like some, sometimes we don't get what adults are saying also. We need to, in order for, to understand the youth, we need to have adults become youths, so to say. <laughs> so, there we go. <laughs> And yes. then it's like an eye for an eye. That's when we'll understand, oh, now I get it. This is what we're talking about. So um, in conclusion, I would like to say that um, I have a sort of quote from Gulliver's Travels, a novel we had to read. read and it says something, the quote something like, when a, uh, someone pretends to reason and does cruel acts, that method alone is worse than brutality itself. I believe that we have all, all of us have been given a mind. God has, been, has given us the conscience to think of what is right and wrong. And if we have given that ability, why should we downgrade ourselves to doing cruel acts to each other? It doesn't make sense. So that's what I'm going to say. Thank you very much, Johan. Let's turn now to Amro Albana and then to William Saito, who will share with us some of their involvements in the business world. Great. Thank you very much. And thank you, Johan, for, for your comments. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for the bravery of, of, for the privilege of being here. <coughs> On September 11, 2001, each one of us remembers what they were doing at the time of the tragic event that hit our nation. That morning, I remember getting up in a hotel in Memphis, Tennessee, preparing to fly to New York City. My whole focus that day was the meeting I was having the following day at the financial center at the World Trade Center. A few minutes later, as I was walking down the hall, my family, excuse me, I realized that I missed many calls on my cell phone. As I checked my messages, I realized that my family, my friends, and many others left me messages praying for me and others that we would be okay. Realizing what just happened and watching the TV sets with many others, I was unable to comprehend, believe, or imagine what our nation was facing. I was simply in a state of shock. America has changed and so have some aspects of our lives. I want to share to do I want I want to share with you today one of these aspects. 
technology and its applications prior and post September 11. In October of 2000, we announced our latest technology advancement, which was the miniaturization of a technology that combined global positioning system to capture location, wireless communications, and bio and environmental sensors. We applied this technology in many areas. For example, a passive version of that technology is used to identify lost pets. Today we have 25 million microchips worldwide and we recover a lost pet every 10 minutes. Our technology was also applied by the United States Department of Energy. We track salmon migration for various environmental and research purposes. Many other medical and commercial applications were spun out of that technology. Today, post-September 11, our technology is looked at for purposes that we never thought of before. Our technology will be used early next year to track sex offenders, ensuring that no one with such criminal record is close to a school zone. Our technology will be considered for the use in the transportation of hazardous materials to alert authorities if such vehicle is too close to a sensitive site. Environmental sensors combined with wireless communications may be able to detect biological agent threats in subway and train stations. Ladies and gentlemen, we have seen a shift in demand. With such technical advancements that we see every day, infinite number of possibilities exists. The real question I want to present to you today isn't what we can do with technology. It is what we should do with it. We need to find the right balance. After all, we are fighting for our values. We are fighting for freedom. Thank you and God bless all of you. Thank you very much, Amro. And now William Saito, who's president of IO Software, will speak. Well, good afternoon. Um, it's a pleasure to uh, speak with you all here today, or in my case, uh, still good morning, as I was uh, in Asia just a few hours ago. Um, <laughs> I must say that uh, after, uh, I guess, having been the honor of the last speaker and following uh, all these presentations, uh, I have a pretty big shoe to fill here. Um, at the same time, uh, AMRO provided a good segue here on the application technology, which is an area that I cover. And uh, I thought I'd share a little story how, in how uh, serendipitously uh, we have gotten involved into this whole 9-11 tragedy. But before I do so, I thought I'd share some background uh, to put uh, this conversation in context about what we do. Our uh, company, IO Software, is an authentication uh, platform provider. Uh, what this means is we deal in areas of security uh, as it relates to things like encryption, cryptography, authentication like biometrics. Uh, biometrics, uh, you've probably heard with uh, things like fingerprints, iris recognition, facial, and so on and so forth. And so our technology is licensed or utilized by over uh, 90 companies worldwide, including companies like uh, Microsoft, Intel, uh, Visa, Sony, and the likes and which will uh, incorporate this technology into up-and-coming products and such. But again, back to my story, 
uh, in fact, had actually began at UCR. Uh, a little over a year ago, a group of us had uh, decided to go to uh, Tokyo for a reunion of sorts for uh, a number of students who uh, were graduates of UCR. Um, I had tagged along and uh, uh, joined this group. We had visited a number of companies and such and talking about this kind of technology and the application technology outside the context of obviously terrorism and such. Uh, obviously from within the area of protecting data, uh, having easier access to doors and the likes, uh, and so on and so forth, so you don't have to remember your passwords and whatnot. And so, uh, even before 9-11, uh, business in a sense was definitely an area that was increasingly important due to the internet and the use of computers, uh, especially in non-English speaking countries such as Asia and such. So through this trip, uh, a group of us had uh, visited a number of schools and such that uh, UCR graduates were going to, were coming from, uh, had gone to. And so uh, we had a, a wonderful time. Um, on uh, September 10th, uh, part of our group split off to uh, Korea to go and talk to the various delegations in Korea and such. I, on the other hand, had to uh, actually get back to business and uh, was my on, on my way to the uh, East Coast and uh, uh, to discuss the application of our technology to one of our largest uh, utilizers of our technology, namely the U.S. Department of Defense. And so on the way there, um, obviously I made it, uh, but uh, serendipitously had gotten uh, pulled into the discussions of how to apply this technology, everything from uh, counterterrorism to physical security and such. And so uh, my role had dramatically changed from that day where I was dragged in and basically cut off from my family for about 10 days in discussing uh, this application technology in a uh, wing of the Pentagon that uh, you could smell the smoke and so on and so forth and, and being very live there in talking to people that are very serious, that come from many, many ethnicities and such, to develop solutions and such, some, some quite haphazardly, some uh, with a lot of thought in mind. Uh, this discussion still goes on, but through my involvement in such, uh, it has led to various developments and stuff, hopefully, uh, some of which I'll share today, uh, because of the different world that we live in. Uh, from day one, there was uh, an ad hoc group for uh, counterterrorism task force that was formed, which I was uh, volunteering and nominated and dragged into that we had helped. This had ultimately found applications into other areas, various intelligence services, finding out how this technology can or cannot be used uh, for other areas. Uh, this ultimately culminated into everything from the EOP to uh, the State Department uh, getting involved and, and, and to this date now being run by the Office of Homeland Security on how this type of technology is being applied and, all, and debates going on and eventually how it affects people like us on a daily basis. So my life for the last oh, 11 months or so has been an incredible amount of traveling between Riverside, Tokyo, and Washington, D.C., where I think of uh, uh, I don't know if this is a good thing, but I've accumulated close to 200,000 miles this year. Uh, and so through this discussion, uh, there is a lot of debate from a lot of people, uh, from a lot of concerns and a lot of issues on issues of privacy and on issues of convenience and on issues of security and on issues that relate everything from civil liberties to what are the threats and what is really the return on investment. And in my case, it's the typical balance judgment here. Um, people actually... Uh, find it amusing that here I represent an industry that talks about security 
and talks about authentication and such. Some of these things get into pretty privacy, uh, private issues and private civil liberty issues. Yet, uh, I actually take the stance of trying to balance these issues like facial recognition not really working in airports or this technology not being applicable to that uh, scenario or, or this and that. And so it has been an interesting uh, 11, 12 months here in terms of defining and balancing policy to make sure that we live in a safer world, uh, hopefully more convenient, but uh, without taking away any from anything from our civil liberties and such. And so uh, some of the things that, as maybe a uh, example of things that uh, people would probably expect in the next 12 to 18 months are things like trusted traveler's cards, where people will be given cards on uh, boarding airplanes in a more convenient manner. And this subject in and of itself uh, opens up a myriad of, uh, let me tell you, discussions that would go on for four or five days easily. Uh, other issues are the nationalization of the driver's license. Uh, in living in a country uh, where many, many states think it's, uh, it has a, uh, uh, believe it's their sovereignty to have the driver's license, but at, at the same time trying to balance the security issues of someone in California not knowing what a fake Florida driver's license looks like. Uh, debates like this, uh, border control and immigration, uh, terrorist watch lists using psychological mappings, neural networks and such. These are all issues that are currently in debate that a lot of very smart people from a very diverse cultures are looking at to address, to really uh, address the very different world we live in. And in the United States, we've been privileged that we haven't had to address this debate. And it's, uh, uh, but unfortunately, because of the recent events, uh, we have had to do so. Uh, my travels to Asia now is real to take this because, uh, as we can see, this progression is not just uh, the United States anymore. It affects people worldwide. And so these are all issues that will affect us daily. Uh, and fortunately or unfortunately, there will be changes and such. And so from a technical basis, Yes, uh, in my personal life, there have been a lot of changes, uh, mostly on behest of trying to find that balance because uh, there will be a lot of changes. Uh, I'm not here to say is that good or bad. Uh, there is certain applications and technologies to this type of problem. The policies and the debates will go on on its implementation. Uh, I'm, I guess I suppose I'm the messenger. <laughs> and we're just trying to put together a system that is of reasonable but uh, yeah, again, the stories that I heard today and such are very touching and so on, uh, and I, I can't put a candle to that, but uh, I thought I'd share the ongoings from a federal level from what people could expect just because we do live in a different world, but that uh, to hopefully uh, be able to sleep better a little bit tonight that we are addressing these because of the many diverse cultures and stuff that they do make up this country to put together a solution that hopefully ultimately benefit everybody here. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, all of you, for generating uh, new understandings of your involvements and uh, activities. Let's uh, give opportunity to anyone in the audience, the former panelists or other members of the audience, to uh, continue the conversation. Jim Besterfield. Hi. I took off my name tag, so now I'm just a member of the audience. Uh, I would like the panel to comment if they would. We've talked a lot about the fear factor and, and all this, but how do, how do you feel about dealing with an organization like Al-Qaeda and the, the assiduous groups of that who are only interested in hurting us? They're not interested in talking to us. 
They don't want to negotiate with us. They, their whole agenda is simply to bring down our way of life. In fact, you two guys on the end are probably their principal targets right now because they want to destroy American business. Because by destroying American business, they destroy America. But how far are we going to take this into the area of, do you see a necessity to infringe on civil liberties? If so, how far? Uh, is law enforcement going to have to change its basic concept of being a reactive agency and converting that into an overall proactive agency? How do we see the, uh, the use of intelligence at state and federal level? How far will that infringe upon the individual as opposed to keeping us safe, the trade-off between safety and security? Let me just address the uh, civil liberties issue real quickly. It's uh, an area of racial profiling, for example, which is something that's uh, you know, being overlooked by the federal government, uh, demanding that local law enforcement agencies uh, prohibit the practice of racial profiling, educate the officers on what it is, what it is not, educate our communities, uh, do research and demographic studies, uh, stops, and so forth. Now, all of a sudden, since September 11th, we're getting mixed messages out of Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've heard that before. You know, now we're in this area where we should be over here. And it's confusing to the locals. It is. Uh, where are we going with it? Uh, so that's an issue that needs to be, you know, we're, we're watching very, very closely, uh, getting signals from the federal government, which, again, is, is overseeing how locals uh, deal with this issue in their daily interactions with citizens in our communities. Um, basically still, you know, reasonable suspicion and probable cause drive our contacts and our, and our stops of citizens, pedestrians, uh, vehicle drivers, and so forth. But again, we're in this area now of uh, are we suspending these rights or are we, are we enforcing in a different area? So it's a, a matter of confusion for, for the locals. I'm going to admit that. Can I, I'd like to follow up on that because this is an issue that, that has been discussed um, quite a bit. And I guess my perspective sort of um, jumps from Thomas Jefferson's famous quote that any society that uh, compromises freedom for security deserves neither. And I really do come from that place, but I also recognize that we are in a time where we, we have to look at the situation very seriously, and we as community members need to be providing our police department and our local law enforcement with information about what our expectations are for how they conduct themselves in our community. Yes, the federal government is, is you know, passing out edicts and we read about them in the paper. That doesn't necessarily mean it translates through the state and to our local law enforcement exactly as John Ashcroft is putting it out there. And if we are interested in preserving civil liberties and maintaining a balance that is tolerable for us, we better be working with our local law enforcement and letting them know what our expectations are. Talked with Chief Leach on several occasions about um, hosting a, a meeting of the Human Relations Commission where we can talk about racial profiling in the post 9-11 environment because our law enforcement is sort of left holding the bag. And we need to come out and, and communicate what our expectations are for this community. We have much more power than we're willing to exercise. And until we recognize that, we, we will live in fear. We will you know, be more concerned about Al-Qaeda than the violence that we face in our own community, you know, which is much more likely <laughs> to affect us personally. And I, I really think that that's the, the perspective that, that I have found keeps me above water 
And I, I really think it helps people feel more empowered to get out there and do something about it. The military budget for the United States is more than the combined military budgets of the next 25 nations combined. Those are first world nations. 25 nations combine their military budgets and they still have less than the military budget for the United States. If you've been keeping up with the cuts that are taking place in social services, in healthy families, in everything that we're talking about that I feel people here value, then you have to ask, is war big business? It is very big business. I am very afraid that we are going to bomb Iraq because it's big business. We have bombs. We can't buy more till we use up some. I ask you, when you look in your wallet, you live your values and how you spend your money, let's ask the United States how we're spending our money. I have a dilemma I want to toss out, uh, because Russ brought it up, and it's, it's something that really applies uh, to everyone on the panel, because Russ raised the issue of profiling, and in a sense, the technology things touch in on that, human relations. And I'd like to suggest that the change, there is a change debate on profiling since September 11th, and it's, it's this, and I, how do you grapple with it? It's a dilemma I don't have an answer for. As I do diversity workshops around the country and train diversity trainers, the shift in the discussion, the question is this. It's no longer should we or should we not have racial profiling. The shift is to what extent and in what respects should race, ethnicity, religion, and personal appearance be involved in profiling. I say that because even some of the leading First Amendment lawyers in the country, civil libertarian lawyers, Lawrence Tribe and Floyd Abrams, named two, have come out in favor of profiling, not just using race as the identi single identifier. But I think unless we grapple openly with the issue of to what degree should these other factors play a part in profiling, we've missed the subtleties and ended up with an either-or debate which has no solution. And I'd like to, you know, the panelists maybe to respond to the issue is, how do you see race and religion and ethnicity playing into the profiling issue as you work your way through, and not just in an either-or basis? And Russ may be the other one to... Real, real quick, you know, it's a tremendous dilemma. And you know how profiling began in New Jersey. New Jersey State Police got a grant from the federal government, uh, DEA, to profile drug couriers driving uh, loads of the narcotics up through New Jersey, Highway 95, I think it was. And then, of course, uh, they began to uh, put together profiles of these suspected couriers, and from there they began enforcement. So uh, basically the federal government gave money to the locals to start this notion of profiling. Then it became Operation Jetway, where officers uh, in task force mode, locals and state and DEA, would wander through airports and look at people and look at uh, flight manifests, see what plane they got off, which one they're going on, and they'd say, bingo, we've got a profile now of a courier who's uh, moving uh, narcotics uh, through the airs, uh, through the airways. It became, that, that's how it started. And now here we are today. And then they said, stop all that, lawsuits everywhere. Remember the Joe Morgan case, LA airport, uh, he got grabbed. 
uh, this, let's stop all this profiling, let's get back to reasonable suspicion, probable cause, and so forth. Uh, but now September 11th has come, and here we are now, and again, as I said earlier, we're getting tremendous mixed messages from Washington, and we're the ones who are engaged in local law enforcement. And, uh, and they've created this fear. They've, they've, they've put out the portrait of, the, uh, here's your terrorist, you know, what the person looks like. And then look what happened in Phoenix. Ignorance, hatred, and fear made a person kill another person, an absolutely innocent person, a local businessman. Hatred, ignorance, and fear. That's where we are. And this is, a, this is an issue that community needs to debate. We need to express outrage on, whether it's uh, police officials talking about our roles, whether it's Human Relations Commission talking about it, whether it's members of an audience like this addressing it. It's a tremendously important. I don't have an answer, you don't have an answer, but we need to talk about it and force some kind of resolution somewhere. Mr. Kuko, finally, your turn yes, again. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Well, I'd like to take you back to the issue of democracy. And actually, uh, there is an old axiom that says you don't know people unless you, you live with them for 40 days. I uh, would say you don't know people unless you live with them for 40 years, mm -hmm. not 40 days, you know. So sometimes we really speak and we don't know exactly what's going on, you know. Um, uh, if you speak to ask someone about democracy in the streets of Riyadh, he'll probably say to you, well, uh, I don't care much, you know, as long as there is money in my pocket and I have everything that I need, I don't care about your values over in America or in the West. If you talk to someone also in, uh, in Abu Dhabi, he may say the same, you know, and so in order for us to really inculcate in them our values, you have to have use another uh, mode of, uh, of uh, I don't know, uh, making them understand it. Anyway, uh, sometimes democracy itself does not really help, you know, and uh, if you look to terrorism and the history of terrorism, you see places like uh, democracy was, was well held sometimes, like, uh, for example, if you take Germany and Japan, uh, democracy really flourished, flourished, flourished after the World War II, but still very vicious terrorist groups came out of, uh, of Germany, uh, von Mannheiden and the Red uh, Army of uh, uh, Japan and the Kamikaze attacks and things like that, you know. So democracy is not only, uh, she, she, uh, I mean, democracy can never be the solution by itself. It has to be followed by other things, mainly number one, education. People should understand education. In my home country, people had a, a, a good periods of democracy, but at the end, uh, a military man takes over and they say, well, that's fine because the politicians have failed, you know. So you have to couple democracy with, with other things. And as Linda said, you know, uh, I was reading uh, some statistics a couple of weeks ago. 80% of the American foreign aid, 80%, I mean 86%, sorry, of the American foreign aid goes to only four or five countries over the world. 14% go to 153 countries in the world. While every morning there are 77 I mean, no, 770 million wake up in the morning and they don't know what to eat and they don't have anything to eat. In other ways, there are about 770 million in this world that may starve every day. Okay, so we need to reach those, those people. If you, don't, if you don't eliminate poverty, if you don't eliminate sickness, if you don't eliminate, if you don't eliminate ignorance, you can't speak about democracy. And democracy will never be sustained, you know. So you have to have the environment for the democracy before you can get to, 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 to speak about, uh, about uh, uh, sustaining it, you know. This is, this, is, this is a very important point that has to be, to, to be uh, mentioned. And, uh, and, and you could see, you could see terrorism everywhere now. 
everywhere. Uh, the IRA is flourishing in, in Ireland, which is a very good country. I visit Ireland myself. Very beautiful country, very rich country, but still people are killing each other. Why? Okay. So there isn't so much of education coupling that kind of, of, of democracy over there, you know. You look also to the Latin American case, you know. Some, some very good places also they have, they have lots of troubles, you know. So I guess we have to have another look. Yes, the democratic values are great. We have to uh, disseminate them. We have to propagate for them. But also we have to make sure that we prepare the environment for them. And that's, 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 that's the point I wanted to make so far. I guess I have another point, but I don't want to take more of your time. Thank you. All right. Well, you can get back in line for another, another comment. Yes. Hi, my name's Guru Mantra Khalsa, and first of all, I'd like to acknowledge the organizers and participants for putting together a forum where people can come together and take a stand for what they're willing to have in their lives. There were hundreds of people here earlier today who took the time and the effort to come out and declare what they're going to have in their lives. And it seems to me the overall theme that I'm hearing is an issue of relatedness. We're not. And I've been resigned and cynical for years. In fact, what I used to tell people when they'd complain, I'd say, do you vote? Do you donate blood? Do you recycle your trash? It's good advice still, but it doesn't have a component of relatedness. And so I've been called into action about this issue and thinking very locally what I'm doing, and I invite all of you to consider this. I'm going to start having a potluck where I invite five neighbors. The theme of the potluck is everybody has to write down what they want in their communities. Now, when Miguel and Diana spoke, I was moved by that. And if I can have that in these potlucks and insist that all of these five people I invited go out and have their own potluck with five more people, I think we could start to finally feel what it's like to be related. Thanks. That ties in very much with the theme of power that we talked about earlier on. Someone said to me recently in the sort of discussion, powerlessness is really rooted in disconnection. And it's when people are connected and trying that there is a feeling of agency, a feeling of power, the possibility of efficacy and of change. And so I think your example is a very apt, visible, and certainly concrete example accessible to all of us because we all like to eat and we all have neighbors. And uh, this, this is certainly anticipates one of the closing uh, issues of our day today in terms of what are some action items we can take. So I appreciate your bringing that in. Yes. Thank you. Um, I find it somewhat bewildering that we didn't hear today, and in general we don't hear in the media, why 9-11 happened in the U.S. and not, say, in Singapore. Uh, it's, you know, this is, uh, the, the U.S. is often presented as an innocent victim that this just happened here, and nobody tends to even try to explore the issues that went behind whatever happened here. You know, it wasn't Singapore, it was New York for a reason. And I'm interested in knowing, perhaps from the historian, uh, you know, why this happened here. Because I don't know, I don't never get it from the media, f for sure. Because, you know, corporate control media is very careful about spooning out information, and only that information that will generate, shape, and perpetuate public opinion. So I'm curious to know why this happened here.
I'd like to respond to that very briefly because it touches on something I mentioned earlier, and it's something also that I'm observing about the conversations in our culture at this time. I mentioned last year reading in the Christian Science Monitor, which is a very well-regarded internationally um, informed newspaper, that one of the lead articles was, Why Do They Hate Us? And as I pursued that question, because it was certainly in my mind and heart, and I like the way you phrase your question, why not Singapore, why not some other uh, city, um, it took me on a historical journey in terms of outlining some of the issues of American foreign policy in the Middle East as holding the seeds of the answer to that question. And I find myself uh, wanting to pursue this more because I'm, I'm not a trained historian, but I'm very interested in the ways in which history can illuminate the present. And yet I find in the current climate where there is a strong patriotic move and mood that those kinds of questions appear to be self-critical, are seen by some as subversive, and uh, then open discussion is really not possible. But I want to affirm the question, uh, and I think your, your way of um, imaging it for us, why this city, why this cluster of cities, why not in some other first world country uh, or some other um, productive uh, uh, country in terms of monetary, uh, monetary power uh, would be the object. And I think because we are such what the remaining superpower in the world, uh, we do, we, we really ought to find it uh, within ourselves to take some hard looks at our own involvement. Certainly Linda Dunn raised that question in terms of the way in which our taxes are spent on excessive military budgets, the way in which we deal with terrorism in terms of more violence. The other word that is not prevalent in these conversations, I find, is the word peace, the work of peace. Not that peace is some, again, soft, squishy word like love, let's all be peaceful and happy together. No, peace is the result of hard labor. But it is a labor that is analogous to the kind of labor we place in terms of our investment in training people in the military. And what about the work of peace? It does start, again, locally, but it certainly has, uh, requires global initiatives as well. And so these are some of the unvoiced elements of the conversation that I would like to see uh, brought to the fore, and I appreciate your opening the opportunity for me to say all this.